Uh, Would you like to turn in your Bibles to Isaiah and to chapter 53? It's on page 729 of the Church Bible, 729. Most of you will probably be aware that Isaiah 53 is part of what's known as the fourth servant song. There are four servant songs beginning in Isaiah 42, all prophetically talking about the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, God's anointed servant who would suffer and die on the cross to save us. And this last servant song is the climax of those four. And it actually begins in the previous chapter, chapter 52 and verse 13. So we'll read from verse 13 of chapter 52 down to the end of chapter 53. So this is God speaking prophetically about his servant, his anointed servant, the Lord Jesus Christ, and how he would save his people. This is what we read. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up, and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, God's people Israel, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance, and his form beyond that of the children of men. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which had not been told them, they see. And that which they had not heard, they understand. Who has believed what what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. And no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off uh, out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. 
and they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Well, we're continuing this series of five messages, which I've entitled A New Look at Grace this afternoon. I don't know how you're doing. I don't know if you're feeling a bit tired, a bit sleepy, whether you uh, had some of that uh, rather nice brownie and it's all beginning to sink and settle on your tummy. I'm going to have to work hard at keeping you awake this afternoon, but I'll do my best. So far, what have we learned this morning? We've learned that all of us as human beings are lost Not lost a bit, not lost quite a lot, but totally lost, totally unable to find ourselves, to save ourselves, to get right with God by anything that we do in our own effort. We're totally lost, and yet God has not abandoned us. God has not just left us to what we justly deserve, which is eternity in hell. God, in his grace, has chosen to save some. And we're going to look now, as we continue this series, at the third finger of God's salvation. We've seen that we cannot save ourselves, only God can save us. We've seen that we're totally lost. We've seen that we're chosen unconditionally. And now we're going to see that we have been redeemed, if we're Christian, as his people. You could say, I, if I'm a Christian, was completely lost. And then God, for no good in me, chose to save me. And he redeemed me personally. That's what we're looking at now. Christ's redemption. He redeemed me personally. Christ redeemed his people. That's the third message that we're going to look at this afternoon. Christ's redeeming work. So we're focusing on the cross this afternoon. Uh, The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ about 2,000 years ago, just outside Jerusalem in Calvary. This is the the middle finger, this one here, of my hand. You could say it's at the center of the hand. It's at the center of God's rescue plan. It is the center of the gospel. And you'd be right. All those things are true. The cross is the central truth that we must grasp if we're to understand the gospel and the message of salvation. Why did Christ die on the cross? What did he accomplish through his death on the cross? If we don't understand that, we don't understand the gospel. 
We don't understand how a person becomes a Christian. So let's think about it this morning. One of our hymns says, He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. That we might go at last to heaven, saved by his precious blood. And the hymn writer's right. All those things are true. But who's the we? And who's the us? He died that we might be forgiven. He died to make us good. That's what we're going to focus on this afternoon. Is it everybody? Some people think so. Some people will quote John 3.16 and say, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That means Christ was given for the world, they would say. So Christ died on the cross for everyone. Christ died for the world. That's the doctrine of universalism. But if they say that, you need to point them back to their very own verse and say, read on. John 3.16 doesn't end there. God so loved the world, yes he did, that he gave his only begotten son, yes he did, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's those who put their faith in Christ, those who are joined to Christ by faith who are saved, not those who don't, only those who have faith. Many don't believe. And those who do not trust in Christ by faith are not saved. Whosoever believes on the Lord Jesus Christ, says John 3.16, the many are those who trust Christ by faith. I'm sure you're familiar again of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus at the end there in Matthew 7 says there are two roads. There's a broad road that leads to destruction and there are many on that road and there's a narrow road that leads to life and there are few on that road. He said the narrow road is difficult but Jesus urges everybody to take the narrow road. He says, enter by the narrow gate. Choose the path that leads to life. That's what Jesus said to everyone. He didn't say, oh, you might not be elect, so I'm not going to invite you. He said, come to me, all of you, who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus offered salvation to everyone, but only those who take the narrow path, who enter by the narrow gate, are on the narrow road that leads to life. That's what Jesus concludes with in the Sermon on the Mount. So who did Jesus die for then on the cross? Did he die for everybody? That's the doctrine of universalism. Well, if he did, he's failed, hasn't he? If he died for everyone, everyone should believe. Everyone should go to heaven, and that's not the case. The world is full of People who don't believe. If we, if we were to believe that Jesus died for everyone, we would have to conclude that Jesus' death on the cross was a failure. But it wasn't. Jesus died for a specific people, as we'll see. Did he die just to make it possible for people to be saved? Well, he did. It's true. You can say Christ died potentially for the whole world. But is it then just up to men? whether they believe or not. John 3.16 again. Well, 
Christ did die potentially for the whole world. So we can offer the gospel to everyone in Poplar and London and the world and say Christ has done enough for you to be forgiven. If you trust in him, you can be saved. That's true. But Christ has done more than just make it possible. Christ has done more than that at the cross, as we were going to see. So, has Christ opened the door of heaven that we may go in? Yes, he has. But he's done more than that as well, as we will see. So what's the truth that we're thinking about this afternoon? The third truth we're going to look at this afternoon is that Christ died on the cross to save his chosen people. That's the truth that we're going to look at. And again, like the other truths, we're going to look at the biblical evidence for that truth and the practical applications of it to us. His saving work on the cross was concrete. It was definite. He took the punishment of his people and he purchased salvation for them. So the word redeemed means to buy back. It's to pay a price. And Jesus paid that price in full for his people. That's the teaching of the Bible, as we will see. This follows on from the truth that God has chosen a certain people from before the foundation of the world. They're his people. In John 10, we read this morning, didn't we? Jesus talks about his sheep. He says, I'm going to lay down my life for the sheep. I lay it down of my own free will. I take it up again. No one forces me. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Jesus talks about his sheep. The Jews said, you know, they're arguing with him. And he said, you don't believe in me because you're not my sheep. Jesus said, he has a certain people that he has come to rescue and save. And those people are chosen not for any good in them, but by God's free grace. But this truth is not just a logical extension of what we've seen already. As I've, seen, I've said to you already, it is what the Bible teaches. So let's look at the biblical evidence for this truth. But before we do, <laughs> we need to understand the words we're using. We need to understand about punishment and redemption. So let's look at those, shall we? Punishment. Can you see that picture on the screen there? What's that guy doing, do you think? He's a thief. He's just broken into someone's house and he's stolen some goods and he's been caught by the policeman and the policemen have got it all on CCTV. It's a, it's a slam dunk. He's guilty, okay? So he that did the crime must do the time, okay? Justice demands that those who sin, those who are guilty of breaking the law, must be punished. That's justice, okay? And God is just. God is holy. God is righteous. And God will punish the wicked. But when a person is released, the debt is paid in full. If the penalty is five years in prison, at the end of that five years, the prisoner is released... And 
is not required to pay the penalty again. And no one else is required to pay the penalty because the penalty has been paid. The sentence has been fully delivered and justice has been satisfied. Okay, that's punishment and justice. Justice says that those who are punished once cannot be punished again. Once the punishment has been meted out, that's the end of the matter. And justice also allows someone else, if they want to, if they willingly choose to, to take the punishment on behalf of someone else. And that's what Jesus did on the cross. Jesus, as we read in Isaiah 52 and 53, willingly took the place of the guilty. The innocent Lord Jesus Christ took the place of the guilty on the cross and paid the penalty in full. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. Jesus paid the penalty, which was death on the cross. And the Bible says the guilty will suffer everlasting punishment in hell. Christ experienced that, compressed into time on the cross. That's why he cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Death is separation from God. It wasn't just the nails. It wasn't just the thorns and the back ripped to shreds. The, the physical agony of crucifixion. Jesus experienced the spiritual agony of separation from God. Which is why, as you read in Psalm 22, which Jesus quoted, he could cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the answer to that question is, because he loved you. And he wanted to save you and me and all his people whom he set his love upon before the foundation of the world. So that's punishment. Jesus said on the day of judgment, uh, he would say to those on his left who had broken God's law, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels, and then these will go away into everlasting punishment. So hell is a place of punishment, and justice demands that lawbreakers are punished. For about ten years, I used to go into Strangeways Prison in Manchester. If you don't know much about prisons, they have different categories. And category A is the highest level of security for the worst offenders. And Strangeways in Manchester is a category A prison. So people who've committed multiple murders, terrorists, rapists, sex offenders, are sent to Strangeways Prison. And for about 10 years, I used to meet with these prisoners and do Bible studies with them as part of the chaplaincy team. And some of them would say to me, can God really forgive me? Do you have any idea what I've done? And I could say to them, in all honesty, yes, he can. Christ has done everything you need to be forgiven. Christ is able to forgive you. And I would describe hell to them as an everlasting prison sentence. That would kind of touch a raw nerve with them. They were in Strangers Prison. It's horrible. Have you ever been in strange ways? It's not nice. People commit suicide in prison because it's so horrible in there. Many of them are in there for, for life because of the crimes they've committed. And they have no hope. And I say to them, hell is worse than strange ways. Hell is a place of everlasting punishment. 
But justice demands that the sin, the crime, be punished. God would be unjust to punish people in hell for their sins if Christ had already been punished for the same sins on the cross. Do you understand that? God cannot punish Christ for your sin and then punish you again in hell. He's punishing the same sin twice. You see, justice says if the penalty is paid once, that's the end of the matter. It's important we understand that. God is just, as it says in Romans 3.26, and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. So a justifier is a judge who says, not guilty, you may go free. I declare you innocent because the penalty is paid or you're not guilty of the crime. So God says to the Christian, you are forgiven. You may go free because my son has paid your debt. Your crimes have been dealt with on the cross at Calvary. And God is both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ in so doing. Redeem. What does that mean? I said already, it means to buy back. I don't know how many of you ever get a bit short on cash at the end of the month. And you know the paycheck is coming, but you need money today. And the paycheck's next week, so you think, how am I going to get some cash? One way is to go to a pawnbroker. And so I've got this really nice watch. It wouldn't get much for my cheap digital one. But you could go to a pawnbroker and say, can I give you my gold watch, Mr. Pawnbroker? It's worth a few hundred pounds. And he looks at it and says, I'll give you 50 quid. And you go, oh, it's worth more than that. And he goes, I'll give you 75. Okay. So you say, I'll go on then. And so you get 75 in cash and then you pay the electric bill or whatever it is you need to do. But then you go back after you've had your paycheck and you want to redeem your watch because you know it's worth 200 really. And the, the pawnbroker says, right, it'll be £95 to redeem it now. That's how they make their money. And you have to pay extra to buy it back. You say, but well, hang on, that's my watch. Yeah, yeah, but you have to redeem it. You've got to pay the price. That's what it means, to buy back. To buy back. We have to pay a price to redeem something. And Peter says in his first letter, we were redeemed not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And once it's paid for, it's ours. Even if you collect it later. So you can go to the pawnbroker and say, Here you are, here's my £95. Uh, the watch is mine now, but I'm just going to go and do some shopping. Can you hang on to it? Keep it under the counter and I'll come and pick it up later. Okay, you've redeemed it, you own it, but you're going to collect it later. Okay, and that's what Christ does with us. At the cross, he pays the price. We belong to him, his people, but we enter into that relationship in our experience later on at conversion. But the price was paid at the cross. So Jesus is our redeemer. He came down from heaven to earth 
to save his people from their sins. That's what the angel said to Joseph, isn't it? You shall call his name Jesus because he will save his people, not everybody, his people from their sins. And he did. He was born to die. We see that in the gifts, don't we, in the nativity. Gold, frankincense and myrrh. Myrrh reminding us of his death. And at the cross, he paid in full for all his people. The price, as we thought already from 1 Peter, was his suffering and his death on their behalf. And they were purchased, they were redeemed in full. As Jesus breathed his last. Before he died, he he said a Greek word, tetelestai, it is finished in English. Paid in full. The same words used if you're paying off your mortgage. The last £10, you give it to the bank and you go, tetelestai, that's it. My mortgage is over, it's finished. I've paid in full. That's the word Jesus used. Before he breathed his last, it's finished. I've paid in full. The price he paid was his suffering and his death on our behalf. The Bible says, as we read earlier this morning in Ephesians 1, 7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the richness of his grace. So let's unpack that. Everything depends on our relationship to Christ. If you go through Ephesians 1, time and time again, it's in him, in him, in the beloved, in him. It's to do with our relationship to Christ. When we are in Christ, we're joined to Christ by faith. We receive the benefits of all that Christ has done, including his death on the cross, his redemption, Through his blood, which brings us forgiveness. And all of this is according to the riches of his grace. Why did he die for me? Did I deserve it? As we thought in the last session, no. Just like Jacob didn't. I can say, I didn't deserve it. But out of his grace, he chose to die for me. Well, let's look at the Bible now and see the biblical evidence for this truth. Where do we learn these words? Well, we've thought about it already. Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. Let's turn to it just so we can see it for ourselves. You know it's not me misquoting scripture. Matthew 1, verse 21 is on page 959 beginning of the New Testament and the angel is speaking to Joseph and saying you're okay to marry Mary and the angel goes on she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus which means the Lord saves for he will save his people from their sins That's what the angel said to Joseph. Let's go to John's Gospel, chapter 10 again. We've looked at that once already today. But let's focus on those verses a little more closely. John 10, verse 11. It's page 
1065. 1065. John 10, verse 11. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We thought about this morning, didn't we? Not everyone is sheep. My sheep hear my voice. You don't believe me because you're not my sheep, said Jesus to the Jews who didn't believe him. Jesus says, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 11. Look at verse 15. Just as the Father knows me, says Jesus, and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Again, look at verse 26. Over the page. He's speaking to the Jews now who don't believe, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Not everyone is one of Christ's sheep. That's what Jesus teaches there in John 10. What about Paul in the book of Acts? Turn with me to Acts chapter 20. Paul is on his way to Jerusalem here. And uh, he calls uh, for the elders from Ephesus to come to a place called Miletus. And he speaks to them. And this is what he says in Acts 20 and verse 28. Page 1105. He speaks to these elders, the elders from the church in Ephesus, and says, Be, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So he's saying, Pastors, you're looking after a special group of people, not any old people, people that the Lord Jesus Christ purchased with his own blood. Take good care of them. Look after them very well. You'll answer to Christ for what you do to them. He purchased them with his blood. That's how precious they are in his eyes. That's what Paul says to the elders there in Ephesus. Listen to Paul's own words in Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 verse 25 is on page 1162. Paul is speaking to husbands here and instructing them on how to behave towards their wives. This is what he says in verse 25. Husbands. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Husbands, how should you love your wives? The same way Christ loved the church. How did he love his church? He died for her. He died for her. Like a bride. That's how much he loved his church. He laid down his life for his bride, the church. Not for everyone, but for his bride. Isaiah 53. We read it earlier. Let's go back and 
focus on those verses there on the screen. It's page 729. Look again more carefully at verse 11 and verses 8 and 12. Firstly, verse 11. This is the prophet describing what Christ was doing on the cross. And says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see, that's the father will see, and be satisfied. By his knowledge, Christ's knowledge of pain and suffering on behalf of his people, shall the righteous one, Christ, my servant, make many to be counted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. So many will be counted righteous. Who are counted righteous? Those who are forgiven. How are you forgiven? Through faith in Jesus Christ. Who did Jesus die on the cross for? Those who are counted righteous through faith in Christ. His people. The many who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see the same thing don't you, in verse 8. If you look at the end of it. He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. God's people, those whom he chose, those whom he purchased at Calvary, those who belong to him. Verse 12. Again, look at the end of verse 12. Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressor. The many there are God's chosen people. Let's go back to the Old Testament and think about the Passover in Exodus chapter 12. Genesis, Exodus, second book in the Bible. And chapter 12 gives God's instructions to Moses before they come out of Egypt. They've had nine plagues and the Egyptians have suffered, uh, unlike them, in the latter uh, set of plagues. And now... God is saying, if you're to be spared this last plague, the plague of the death of the firstborn, you need to follow these instructions concerning the Passover lamb. So what happened? What were the instructions? Well, God said, if you take a lamb and you kill the lamb and put the blood on the door and the lintels, you'll be spared. Just as the uh, previous plagues, God's people have been protected And hadn't experienced the plagues in the way that the Egyptians had. For this one, the lamb had to be firstly chosen. Chapter 12, verses 3 and 5. Tell the congregation of Israel, chapter 12, verse 3, which is on page 63. That on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's house. A lamb for a household. And then verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old, you shall take it from the sheep or from the goats, and so on. It must be a perfect lamb. It must be one year old. Have it with you for three days. Make sure it's not blind, it's not lame. It's got to be perfect. And then at the beginning of the 14th day of the first month, the lamb will be killed. Look at verse 6. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel 
shall kill their lambs at twilight. So in the Old Testament, a day began at sunset. So the very first few minutes of the 14th day, as the sun was setting, that was when the lambs were killed, the beginning of the 14th day. The blood was to be collected and the blood was to be put on the lintel and the doorpost as a sign so that when the angel of death came through Egypt, it would see the blood and it would pass over the household. And the people are told in verse 12 of chapter 12 these words. For I will pass through the land of Egypt, says God, that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague shall befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So God is saying, stay in the house. Don't come out. Shelter in the blood. And then when the angel of death comes and sees the blood, he will pass over and you'll be spared from the angel of death. So only those who sheltered under the blood were saved. So that's the teaching there of the Passover in the Old Testament. So what does that mean for you and I this afternoon? Well, we see, first of all, that the great accomplishment of Christ's work on the cross, he paid in full for all his people. And not a single person that he purchased is lost. He did not fail, as the universalists would have you believe, when he died on the cross. He succeeded. Heaven will be full. Heaven will be overflowing with his redeemed. All those whom he bought will be there in heaven. So Christ was able to say, it is finished. You don't have to add anything to it, as some religions teach you. Christ has paid in full. So secondly, we may ask, well, how do I know if Christ died for me? This is back to the question of election, isn't it? How do I know I'm elect? How do I know if when Christ died, I was one of those he died for? Well, the answer is in 1 Thessalonians and chapter 1. So turn with me to the New Testament and to 1 Thessalonians. The Apostle Paul, on his missionary journeys, the second one went to Greece and northern Greece, Thessalonica. He planted a church there and then he writes to the Christians there in Thessalonica. And this is what he says to them. Let's read from chapter 1, which is on page 1172, from verse 2 down to verse 7. Paul says, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you 
because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in full conviction. You know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So the Apostle Paul there, writing to these Christians in Thessalonica, says, I know you're elect. I know God chose you from before the foundation of the world. How, you say? How, 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 Paul? By the way you responded to the preaching of the gospel. You believed. Even though you suffered for, for choosing to follow Christ by believing in Jesus, you chose to follow him. And God was working in you by his spirit to give you that faith, to give you the courage to withstand persecution. And you were transformed. You became an example to all the other churches in the area. God has done that great work in you to change you, to convert you. Conversion is is to change. I had the pleasure last night to stay with Henry. And his house, as most of you will know, it used to be a pub. But it's been converted. <laughs> now it's a house. It's totally different. And Paul could say, you've been converted. You changed. You don't serve beer anymore. You, you, you welcome visitors. You're a home. I can tell by the way God has worked in you that you're elect. God has saved you. Your response to the gospel And your transformation tells me that you're one of God's sheep. You've heard his voice and you've followed him. That's what Jesus said his elect would do. That's what Paul says. Others may say, well, if you believe that Christ only died for his elect, his chosen, those chosen before the foundation of the world... Why do evangelism? That was our friend's question, wasn't it, earlier on this morning after the first session. You know, God will save the heathen all by himself, won't he? Well, if you know the history of the Baptist missionary movement, you'll know about William Carey. And you'll know that the the hyper-Calvinists used to argue that. And Carey said, no. God uses means. God has commanded us Christians to go out and preach the gospel to the whole world. And just as Paul did on this missionary journey to Thessalonica, it's then that God works through the preaching of the gospel to waken the dead to life and to convert the lost and to call his chosen people to himself and to make them his own. Let's read Acts 18, verses 9 to 11. Acts 18 and verse 9 is on page 1102. Paul is in Corinth. As I mentioned earlier, Corinth was a horrible place 
They had pagan temples with uh, prostitutes, harlots, and uh, every kind of wickedness you could imagine. And Paul was a Pharisee. He, he was from the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's the last place on earth he would want to live. And yet, God had brought him there. And this is what God says to Paul in Acts 18, verse 9, when Paul is struggling in Corinth. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Paul, this wicked city, this horrible place that you'd love to run away from. My sheep are in amongst all these people. My elect, yes, they may look horrible now, but I've chosen them. And I want you, Paul, to preach the gospel to them. And they will come in response to the gospel and be saved under your ministry, Paul. So go and preach the gospel and call my people to myself through that. So how does the verse go on? Verses eight, sorry, verses nine to eleven. Paul stayed there eighteen months, didn't he? That's what we read later on in the chapter. I've lost the reference there. So, does the idea that God chooses people hinder evangelism? Well, it certainly didn't hinder Paul, did it? In fact, quite the reverse. Paul wanted to leave Corinth. And it's Jesus who said, I've got a chosen people in this city who encourage Paul to stay and to persevere in the work of evangelism. I don't know how Henry has stuck at uh, serving the Lord here in Poplar. At times, maybe he thinks, this is too difficult. Maybe I need to give up. But if Jesus came to Henry tonight and said, Henry, there are more people who need to hear the gospel in Poplar. I have many people in Poplar. Keep going. Keep preaching the gospel. I'm sure he'd be greatly encouraged. When I was in Milnrow, very early on, my first year in Milnrow near Rochdale, I was a bit like Paul in Corinth. I wanted to give up. Everything that could go wrong did go wrong. I think the devil was having an ago, attacking me. And this verse came to mind when I bumped into someone in a pub who was open to the gospel. I thought, wow, I never thought that lady was interested in Jesus. And this verse came to mind. I have many people in this town. Keep preaching the gospel. It's, that's how God calls his people to himself. Some of the greatest evangelists in the history of the world have been convinced of this truth and have looked forward to seeing God's elect respond to the gospel with faith. So don't believe those who say to you, this doctrine prevents evangelism. It doesn't. But what about you? Are you sheltering under the blood of Christ, our Passover lamb? We've seen that in Egypt there was only one way to be safe from the angel of death, and it was to shelter under the blood. The Pharaoh was not exempt. 
the slaves in the dungeons were not exempt. The animals in the field were not exempt. The angel of death killed all the firstborn in Egypt. The only ones that were spared were those who were sheltering under the blood. What about you? Are you sheltering under the blood of Christ? It's the only safe place to be, isn't it? Are you trusting in Jesus' death on the cross for you? If you are, you're safe. If you're not, you need to. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ, which washes the foulest clean. We thank you, Lord, that the blood is powerful and effective to atone, to reconcile sinners to you. We thank you, Lord, that Jesus died, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Father, we thank you that through the preaching of the gospel, you choose to gather in your people and build your church and enlarge your kingdom. Father, help us, those of us who are yours, to be filled afresh with wonder, love and amazement at all you have done for us. And for any who are not yet yours, move them, Lord, to cry to you for mercy, that they may be brought out of darkness into your marvelous light and from the kingdom of Satan into the kingdom of your dear Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.